Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. How does Yale out-rebound Baylor? Um, you go up and grab the ball off the rim when it comes off, and then you grab it with two hands, and you come down with it, and that's considered a rebound. So they got more of those than we did. Thinking Basketball Podcast. Welcome back. My name is Ben. Happy New Year to everyone out there. I hope everyone had a safe and enjoyable New Year wherever you were in the world celebrating. Today, to kick off the New Year, I thought, why not just talk about rebounding for as long as humanly possible? So this is essentially the rebounding episode. Uh, I've had people ask me for more detail about rebounding and I was going to kick off the new year with a story an anecdote about taking care of a baby pig because that was that was wild took care of a baby pig recently but I don't think we have time for that I I, this is just got to be the ins and outs of rebounding now if you're thinking man I don't know if I can sit through a whole podcast on rebounding well we're going to get into some other stuff that matters a lot it gets to the crux of the game of course in terms of you know what the goal is scoring um, effects of teammates on different stats and our appearance and perception of players being successful or unsuccessful in their roles we're going to talk about differences in era between 30 years ago with the guys talking a lot about rebounding and getting on the block versus today so Maybe that can whet your appetite a little bit. Of course, if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're thinking, yes, you've buckled yourself in, you've pulled over on the side of the road with incredible teeming excitement about the thought of discussing rebounding and whether it's valuable and how it works and all this stuff, then we're good to go. I don't need to sell you on anything because it's going to be the ins and outs of rebounding. And this started, so a little backstory. This started this week with a... I guess somewhat controversial tweet about my desire to retire rebounding as a top line stat. Now, really, I've talked about the slash line a lot. That is points slash rebounds slash assists. Uh, One of the first, if not the first video. Yes, it is the first video in the Thinking Basketball Stats 101 series on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. If you check that out, that's all about sort of this high-level summary that we provide of players that has become so popular, points, rebounds, assists, as a way to stack them up, and why even at such a high level it's so murky. Now, of course, there are people out there that use it as more than just a high-level summary, but even at a high level, it has issues. And so points slash rebounds slash assists. I've wondered for a long time how rebounds got put on that same level. And I think it is sort of an archaic, a relic of yesteryear. Way back in the day, we had less information about the game. The game was less complex. I'm talking 50 years ago and more. And rebounding was such a prioritized thing because of the logic of grabbing the ball is a way to ensure possession. Interestingly, that efficiency on those possessions took so long to catch on, but people intuitively kind of valued the idea of grabbing a possession way back then. And so, okay, rebounding is important. Um, It was also a game of size. You know, the Giants ruled the paint 50, 60 years ago, first with George Mikan and then Will Chamberlain. And if you don't know and you haven't intimately read all of my historical materials over the years, there was actually discussion. The way we talk about moving the three-point line back today There was discussion about raising the hoop back in the 50s uh, in terms of like making it harder for big men. I don't know if that would help them or hurt them. But there was even discussion about banning people over a certain height because it was too unfair for them. 
And of course, other things happened instead that were a little more practical, like widening the lane. So you couldn't just camp out in the lane on offense and three-second violations and you know all that stuff. But rebounding and the idea of verticality was a huge thing for a long time and it's just kind of stuck. My premise here today, I guess, is going to come in in two parts. Let me first finish the backstory and then we'll we'll get to the premise. So I so I said, okay, I would love it if in 2020 we could kick off the new year by all agreeing that this rebounding stat isn't at the same level of how a guy is scoring and how a guy is playmaking. Points and assists, they have their own issues. I've talked about them extensively, but at least conceptually, the idea is around these really high-level things that provide value on offense in basketball, namely scoring well and setting up your teammates to score well. Okay, so to my surprise, I did not realize how many people still view rebounding as a stat that kind of has the same gravitas that is also important. And a lot of people said, going back to that original line of thinking from many years ago, they said, hey, grabbing a rebound is important because the other team would get the ball otherwise. Well, this is, I think, kind of a trap. This is a a simplified way to look at it that actually misses the forest through the trees. You're focusing on the literal outcome versus cause and effect versus the things that drive value that make a difference on the court. So it reminded me, uh, it's a little bit of that wages of wins concept. If you're familiar with that, like grabbing the rebound is the thing that is super valuable versus causing a miss that creates an easy rebound to grab. And if you're not familiar with that, I think a similar uh, way to kind of describe what I'm getting at here is it's like saying that it's always better to have a higher true shooting percentage than someone else without considering anything else that goes into that number or that outcome. So 80% true shooting is better than 70% true shooting. Well, what if you score five points a game on that 80% true shooting versus 35 points per game on 70% true shooting? And then you evoke the same logic and say scoring efficiency or scoring efficiently is the name of the game. If you scored at 100% efficiency, you couldn't lose basically. Or with the three-point shot now, you know, 150%, three points per possession. So I'm going to go to the same place, the same sort of place with rebounds. We're going to completely unpack rebounds at the individual and at the team level for the rest of this episode. But before we even get to the two key premises that I'm going to outline here and then talk about in more detail, I just think it's really important to stop and think about this point, if you haven't, that grabbing the rebound is the thing. So the example that I go to often with points and assists and kind of understanding what drives the overall team efficiency is to say, hey, making making the dunk isn't necessarily the thing that's super valuable. I devote a, basically a chapter of Thinking Basketball, the book, to talking about this in greater detail, so I won't belabor it here, other than to say, if you have Kwame Brown on your team and Kobe Bryant draws three defenders and hits him underneath for a dunk, there is an element of Kwame Brown's value to making the dunk. He's a very tall person. If you passed me the ball instead of Kwame Brown, the number of dunks he would make would be much lower. Today, I can't even dunk anymore, so it would be zero dunks. I would have to go to the old school layup. It's not It's not pretty. My vertical has gone in the can. Anyway, where was I? So Kobe is the guy drawing the attention in that situation. Kobe is the guy with three players on him. And if you take Kwame Brown off the court and you replace him with a hundred other NBA big men, you get an almost identical result at the rim. The dunk. He just passes him the ball, layup, whatever. Some guys are a little slower. Some guys are a little faster. Some guys might drop the pass more often, but in general, you get the same result. With Kobe, if you took him off the court and you replaced him with someone who doesn't draw that defensive attention, that dunk goes away completely. 
And there's a similar kind of cause and effect that happens with rebounds that we'll talk about for the rest of this episode. Let me get to the premises really quickly before we kick off. Premise number one that I'm going to lay out for you today. Rebounding isn't that valuable as an individual act. Premise number one, rebounding isn't that valuable as an individual act. In other words, changing a player's rebounding value, if you if we talk about players and we say, oh, one grabs eight boards a game and one grabs 10, that value, whatever it is, we'll get to it, but that value from grabbing more rebounds doesn't significantly change a player's estimated impact compared to other stats like scoring. If we talk about a player and his scoring goes from 10 points per game to 20, so latest video on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel is Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and basically that's been his jump from his rookie year to his second year. That's significant. We know that's significant. There's almost no context where, you know, outside of super teams or something like that, where that doesn't reflect a material change in scoring, and that material change in scoring, assuming the efficiencies aren't way off, says something big is happening, and there's a lot of potential value behind that. There's not a lot of potential value behind a guy averaging seven boards a game and then nine the next season. Same thing with assists. If a player shifts from two or three assists per game to eight, and all other things are held constant... We know that's a massive, significant change in playmaking to some degree. And we know that that has huge value. If you haven't listened to the Top Playmakers and Top Scorers podcasts uh, on this podcast, there are older episodes, you can check them out. One of the ideas behind that research was to try to say, what happens if we change a player's scoring or playmaking radically? And those things are sort of top line value. They matter a lot in my opinion, a couple points per game for the whole team. And that's based on, you know, looking at all the numbers and all the different players that change over the course of history. Rebounding, however, does not have that same value. It's not, there's just really no individual rebounder ever that's going to generate value comparable to the game's best scores or best playmakers. I I don't even really think most players will ever get close Maybe one of the best rebounders ever, arguably the best rebounder ever, Dennis Rodman, he had a season where he averaged 18 rebounds a game in the modern era. He averaged 10 points, 18 rebounds, 2 assists. And so no one says 10, 18, and 2 is better than, you know, let's say Alonzo Mourning had like a 17, 10, 2 17 points, 10 rebounds, 2 assists. No one says, wait, hey, Rodman's got 18 and 10. And Alonzo's got 17 and 10, so Rodman's better. No one actually thinks that way. Premise number two. Premise number two, rebounding as a statistic is less informative of its value today than ever before. Rebounding as a statistic is less informative of its value today than ever before. And this has to do with things, and we'll get into them in more detail, but at a high level, this has to do with things like spacing, switching, different uh, strategies, crashing the glass, even things like small ball lineups, playing up or down your position, so to speak, and certain complexities in rebounding chances. We'll talk about all those in a little bit. Before we get to the details on these premises, a word from our sponsor. Well, wait a second. It's really me. I'm... I'm the word. So I guess I can't say that. Um, It's a word from me about the sponsor, and that is The Athletic. Of course, all kinds of great sports analysis, analytics, uh, in-depth breaking coverage, top writers for all the 30 teams in the NBA, and then some. And what I wanted to note, I, I allude to this all the time when I talk about The Athletic because I think they're such a great resource in Prepping for my Stats 101 series video that I alluded to, there are some links in the additional materials underneath that video, if you go to the description box, for stuff from The Athletic. Well, in prepping for this, I encountered a piece on The Athletic by the great 
uh, Ken Pomeroy. If you don't know Ken Pomeroy, he's like the godfather of college basketball analytics, and he talks all about offensive rebounding trends. So if you have additional quirky little questions about you know what what's the value after an offensive rebounding or there are things that are really detailed or esoteric that I haven't touched on you can find this kind of stuff popping up from time to time on the athletic and in this case it's an article from before I had an athletic membership talking maybe like a year ago talking about trends in offensive rebounding in college basketball and specifically one of the cool things I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes so you can get to it but one of the cool things that I'm not going to talk about today is he notes the tendency to shoot a two or a three after you grab an offensive rebounding. The, uh, after you grab an offensive rebound, the fact that your free throw rate goes up, as you'd expect, after grabbing an offensive rebound. And in college, the college landscape, of course, is slightly different, but you have 300 teams, and so you have a variety of teams and styles playing in different conferences. Some teams are small, some teams are big. And I am going to talk later in this episode about sort of small ball versus big ball. So obviously, all kinds of other great writers at The Athletic, if you're not familiar with them, they are sort of the bee's knees of sports journalism right now. No commercials, you just pay the subscription and you download the app and then you customize the app, you get all the writers you want. It's theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. That lets them know you listen to the show, you support us, and it helps out tremendously. You get 50% off the subscription price for the year. And what else am I forgetting? Oh, you get a week, you get a free week trial. So check that out, theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Okay, now down to business. So why isn't rebounding as valuable as something like scoring or playmaking? Well, we have to think about the variation, the, the difference in range between a low-quality rebounder and a high-quality rebounder or a low-quality score and a high-quality score. If you have, you know, what's a low-quality score? 10 points per 75 or something, 8 points per 75, and your efficiency isn't very good. You can't pressure the defense. You can't shoot. You can't do much of anything. Versus James Harden. That's it. That's the whole argument. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know if we'll find much more that's self-evident in sports argumentation than that, because what ends up happening, leaving aside playmaking for a second, what ends up happening is you can drive offensive efficiency up a decent amount by being that great scorer, you know, whatever it is, three, four, five, six points per 100 possession. I don't know, probably not that much, but you can drive it up. And if you take that player and you replace him with a below average score, a, a really low quality score, you drive it down almost to the same degree. You bog down offenses, you lose a focal point of attack. And so you're talking about something that is huge on the scoreboard. We all intuitively know this. It's why scoring is still, to you know my eye, overrated. It's the thing that people harp on. Great scoring drives value. Weak scoring sort of undercuts value. Similarly, if we replace, if we take the best rebounder in the game, I don't even know who that would be right now, but if we take that player and we put him on a team, I mean, the fact that we don't know or we don't have an immediate list of like who these guys are, I think maybe is telling to some degree, but let's say we took a candidate for the best rebounder and a candidate for the worst rebounder and we swapped them in and out for each other. Is the team with the best rebounder going to be 10 or 15 wins better? I, I don't think we have evidence that suggests anything like that, really. That's the issue. We've got all kinds of evidence for scores moving the needle like this, but none with rebounders. Okay. Remember, whether it's scoring or playmaking or whatever, in the case of rebounding, it's no different. The goal for a team is to maximize its point differential to maximize its efficiency with its offensive possessions and maximize its efficiency or technically limit the opponent's efficiency with its defensive possessions. You want to be as good as possible on offense and as good as possible on defense. The goal is not for a player to grab as many rebounds as possible. I've covered this ground in the 
Thinking Basketball stat series with Andre Drummond versus like Steven Adams. But then you say, okay, he's helping the team grab rebounds. So that's what matters. So the individual is a constituent or a component that contributes to the team grabbing these rebounds. And that that's what matters. The problem there is that the goal isn't even for a team to grab as many rebounds as possible. So let's think about defense. Your goal is to not grab as many defensive rebounds as possible. Your goal is to limit the opponent's points per possession. Big difference. You can force a bunch of turnovers. You can force missed shots that go out of bounds. You can force shot clock violations. You can foul terrible free throw shooters who make the second free throw. Free throw. There are so many ways to do this without grabbing a rebound. Now, of course, throughout the course of the game, most of the time when you get a stop, you grab a rebound. And so we have this correlation that exists. Statistically, it's been a, a big confounder for some people. You have a relationship between the number of defensive rebounds you grab and how good your defense is because you got stops. But this is a very important, this is an extremely important starting point if we're going to try to understand the value behind a rebound. So now imagine a defender who guards an unskilled power forward. So he's on defense, his man can't shoot, he's not a great threat, he hangs out, he kind of hangs out near the basket or in the dunker spot, or sometimes his team spaces him in the corner. But as the defender, you don't have to worry too much about him shooting, you can sag off and hang out in the paint. That defender is going to grab a bunch of individual rebounds because of that assignment. But does that say anything special about that defender? Another example would be having a big man stretch to the perimeter or switch out to the perimeter on defense and hanging out on the perimeter as a big man is going to lower your rebounding numbers. So if you're uh, Miles Turner or something and you constantly switch onto perimeter players, it's going to be hard for you to scoop up those defensive rebounds because now you're, you're in the opposite position of that teammate who was hanging out near the paint, on the block, freelancing, whatever, because he's guarding you know, the, the easiest offensive player on the other side of the court. Those are two very different things. I mean, we know a big man on offense, if you have a stretch big man on offense, It'll lower his offensive rebounding numbers and deflate slightly the total overall rebounds. So we know that rebounding is a stat that has some confounders. Other stats have confounders as well. That's fine. But there is a part of this that comes from the combination of offensive and rebounding, offensive rebounding and defensive rebounding. So it's not obvious whether a player is a good rebounder or a bad rebounder based on his numbers. That's kind of the level of confounding we're talking about here. To me, it's a different degree, because if we say, if we look at scoring, we can try to contextualize and look at teammates, and we we have a sliding scale. We say, well, he scored a little less. You don't go from a 25-point scorer to a 5-point scorer with different teammates. And your efficiency change, you know, your efficiency changed a little bit. Okay, your, your assist changed because you were on ball or off ball or whatever. But with rebounding, it's harder to say, you know, four versus six or seven versus nine. And we'll get to some examples in a second. But the offensive rebounding and defensive rebounding split is a big confounder here. So let's talk about it. These are different skills to me. When I evaluate players, you see my valuations or little notes in my YouTube videos or whatever. These are separate but related skills. So Offensive rebounding as a skill is an off-ball talent. It is an off-ball offensive contribution, meaning you come in, you crash the board. It's kind of like you're, you're finishing something potentially. Someone misses and you come in. It's akin to like a roll man in the big uh, pick and roll. If you get that pass earlier I alluded to, that Kwame Brown pass, you dunk it, same thing. You crash the board, you get an opportunistic position. It's similar to being a cutter as a wing. You can crash the offensive glass from the outside, or you can get the pass directly on that cut. The pass in this case, when it becomes an offensive rebound, is that Kobe assist concept. 
where the guy didn't necessarily hit you when you were open, but your openness, possibly related to the guy dribbling the ball and shooting, your openness helped you get the offensive rebound. All this comes together, and then your athleticism and your size and your nose for the ball come into play. You know, anybody can grab an offensive rebound. Everyone does. Everyone that plays in an offensive game will grab offensive rebounds. But all of this kind of skills I just laid out for it then are either amplified or completely eroded based on your athleticism and your size. So it's like cutting. It's like an off-ball action, like a roll man going to the basket. Someone else does something. You come in without the ball. You clean it up. On defense, rebounding is about position. It's about role. It's about responsibility on the possession. I mean position as where you are in the starting lineup, you know, one, two, three, four, five, but also your position on the court where you hang out. That's dependent on who you're guarding. Your role on the team and the possession, what ends up happening. And so there's a huge difference in defensive rebounding numbers if you're near the hoop all the time or if you're out on the perimeter contesting a shot. Good luck getting a rebound on a closeout to the three-point line. And and note how many players now in the league have some kind of closeout responsibility to end a possession because of the three-point shot, because people are spotting up and spacing farther away from the basket, and how when you close out, your inability to get the rebound says nothing about your rebounding skill. Nothing. So, On defense, you've got your possession, you've got your role, you've got your responsibility, you've got other things that are happening. If there's a breakdown, you may need to go help, and that frees up your man to get an offensive rebound, but that's better than not helping at all and giving up a layup. And you put all that in the blender, and then athleticism, size, nose for the ball, then those things matter. So there's overlap, there's similar and related skills in the size, athleticism, knows for the ball component, but the thing that gets you there is totally different. So some players can be good offensive rebounders and okay defensive rebounders and vice versa, and some are good at both and some are bad at both. Additionally, I mean, there's more. This thing just, the rebounding just goes on forever. Additionally, a team can choose to crash the offensive glass, which will inflate some or all of the players' offensive rebounding rates on that team and therefore their overall rebounding numbers. Or they can go in the other direction and they can try to leak out on the fast break. And when they do that, they give up defensive rebounding numbers and there's more defensive rebounds. So that'll impact some of those numbers, especially if you're a guard and you're asked to leak out. Reggie Miller had some of that. He had good rebounding teammates. And so he leaked out as a guard. Why does it matter that he only grabs three rebounds a game? The goal is not for the individual to grab rebounds. The goal isn't even for the team to grab rebounds. The goal is for the team to maximize its efficiency advantage. So if you trade off a little on defense to get the leak out on offense, that's a choice. Maybe that's the best choice for your team. But it doesn't necessarily say anything about whether you are a good or bad rebounder. So all of these things make it confusing. All of these things make it hard to interpret rebounding stats. I mentioned Reggie Miller. Let's talk about Dirk Nowitzki. Another great example. Dirk Nowitzki was pretty heavily criticized back in the day. I don't know what kind of sanitization of that criticism has taken place now or how easy it is to find these articles, but he was pretty heavily criticized for never averaging 10 rebounds a game despite being 7 feet tall. In arguably his best season, 2011, he averaged 7 rebounds a game, or about 8 per 75 possessions, because the game was pretty slow at that point. Now, compare Dirk with his 8 or 9 rebounds a game. He had, you know, 9 a bunch of times when he was back in his younger days in Dallas. Compare that with a shooting guard that averages four boards per game. Who's better for his position? Who's more valuable? 
I would argue you don't really know just from those numbers. You need more context. Whereas with assists and points, the scope of the change, even if it's not perfect, even if it needs more context, the scope of the change is much clearer. Rashid Wallace. He averaged five rebounds per game in 1999. Rashid Wallace is like a good 6'10". He's a very tall, long human being. Now, was this because Rasheed Wallace was a terrible rebounder? Or maybe that he couldn't provide positional rebounding value? I don't think so. Instead, Rasheed played with really good rebounders. And sometimes he was on the court like a small forward on defense. Brian Grant was one of the bigs. Seven foot three Arvidas Sabonis was another big. Those guys together would play with Rashid on the court. Sometimes Rashid would be the four, and Grant or Sabonis would be the five. Again, good rebounders play closer to the hoop. Rashid a little more mobile. Portland finished third in defensive rebounding percentage that season. And despite having Rashid as more of a stretchier kind of forward for the time, Sabonis could also get out on the perimeter. They were eighth in offensive rebounding percentage. They had the sixth best, sixth best defense in the league that season. Wallace, by the way, made the All-Star game next season, averaging seven rebounds per game when the personnel changed a little bit. Now, now, does that mean you know he was the exact same rebounder? No, maybe he got a little bit more invested in rebounding. But you change the personnel, you get seven boards per game. He was still criticized for that number because he liked to hang out on the perimeter on offense. As a defensive rebounder, Rasheed Wallace was about plus 6% relative to the average player during, you know, the heart of his Detroit years, during some of those best seasons. Plus 6% in this case means if the average player in the league grabbed 12% of the boards or whatever, he gets 18%, whatever it comes out to. Change It's changed a lot in the last 20 years. So I like to look at the relative number to, to get an idea of you know, relative to the environment, how many rebounds is a player grabbing? And that's another issue right now with rebounding. There are so many readily available defensive rebounds that it skews the numbers. So in the case of Rashid, just to put this in perspective, over time, other plus 6% rebounding seasons, Roy Hibbert in 2012, he averaged nine boards a game or about 12 per 75 because he didn't play that many minutes and the pace was slow. Carmelo, Malone, 1989, also right around plus 6%, averaged just under 11 boards per game or 10 per 75. A little faster pace, he played more minutes. Larry Bird, 1987, often touted as an incredible rebounder. I think he was. He was a great rebounder. But just putting some of these numbers in perspective, nine total rebounds per game or about eight per 75. Those are all very, very similar uh, seasons in terms of just rebounding percentage on the defensive side of the ball. So we know there's variability within a player's rebounding and that the value of that variability is smaller than the other primary components of the game. But things are changing that's making it even more cloudy. It's making the picture a little more unclear. So what else, is, what else has been happening today? Well, the big one is space. Spacing changes the entire rebounding dynamic because defensive rebounds on shots close to the hoop are still today rebounded around like 65, 70% of the time by the defense. More bodies, more people close to the basket, more stuff happening around the basket equals more offensive rebounds. And that's how it was back in the 80s. You know, the game wasn't just about crash, 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 crash. Teams weren't just going like, let's send five guys to the glass and just make our entire strategy about offensive rebounding. It was also about the space, where those players are located. So when you have two post-up guys, when you have more stuff happening closer to the hoop, when you have the lane congested like a New York City subway, you're going to naturally have more offensive rebounds. So space has pulled that away. On the long shots, 
where presumably offenses are, I mean, the shooter himself is not crashing into the paint. And even if he does and it's a kickout, you presumably have more players out on the outside. Those shots are rebounded at around 80% by the defense. So 65 to 70% of the time, the defense grabs it on closer shots, more like 80% on perimeter shots. So now think about value over replacement rebounder. Think about swapping out rebounders in these situations where you have long shots. The rebounds aren't really contested. They're not in congested traffic. And the ball just goes right to you. I mean, now you can put me out on the court and I'm going to get that board. We're going to be okay. It doesn't really matter who's out there in those situations. Again, that doesn't mean a player who grabs such rebounds isn't a better rebounder than every replacement player. He may do better on the on the periphery, on the fringe kind of more contested boards, but more and more rebounds are now just falling to players this way. Outside shot, possession spaced out, easy weak side board, I'm the guy there. My guy isn't even crashing, he's getting back. No one's around. Can I grab 100% of the rebounds? No, of course not. Because on defense, what I'm trying to do is force a hard shot and then be in the right position when that shot goes up. I get a hit on a guy, box out, or they're not even around because I'm just so buttoned up, and you're going to get a bunch of rebounds. Caroms and long boards happen sometimes. They go in different directions, and so you're not going to get 100%. You may get 85% if you have your stuff buttoned up or some huge number like that, but it's not 100%. Now, when you give up something like a switch, okay, this is another modern wrinkle. If you switch more, then when the shot goes up, the team doesn't necessarily use that switch for the shot. Like the switch can happen. The big can uh, switch onto the guard out on the perimeter. The big man who set the screen on offense He can go down into the post with the mouse in the house, the little guy on him, and he doesn't necessarily get a post up anymore. But guess what's going to happen to your offensive rebounding percentage if all of your big men are underneath the hoop when you guys shoot on the perimeter and all of the other team's guards are under the hoop? It's going to go up, of course. So switches and all these other things that happen upstream in a possession influence rebounding numbers. This is part of why rebounding is sort of less indicative and noisier today than ever before, because we have more switches. So we have the space and we have switches. The space also plays into making it easier to get by your guy. So spread the court out, let Giannis go to work, Now he's got more space to operate. He can collapse the defense more than ever. And when you collapse the defense, your defensive rebounding percentage goes down. I have a, I don't remember it off the top of my head. I have a bunch of research on this in Thinking Basketball, the book. But essentially, when you bring extra defenders and you take them away from their assignments, you scramble the defense, you increase your opportunity at those offensive rebounds. Finally, I'd say all of this comes together to just add complexity. It's a small thing to note, but think about now the way the game works based on what I just described, where you have closeouts, different closeout responsibilities, different perimeter rotations, X outs, you know, one guy heading toward the perimeter in one direction, another guy heading toward the perimeter in another direction, guards sinking down into, all of these things are happening very quickly. And there's less time to just sit there and kind of Uh, box each other out in a mosh pit or jostle for position in that sense. Literally less time to prepare for the rebound and everything becomes more about what happened earlier in the possession upstream to keep the defense in a good position. I mean, Luka Doncic, he's a great example to me because what does he grab? Like nine rebounds a game right now? Let me look it up. I, I don't even know Because it's just so insignificant to me. 9.6 rebounds per game. If that were like 6 or 7, and all of Luka's 
contested rebounds, his physical rebounds, his rebounds in space, the way he uses his body were exactly the same. I would think exactly the same of him as a player. And of course, we live now in a time where he's getting eight defensive rebounds a game. And that's not because he's like a machine among big men. I like him as a rebounder, by the way. I called that out last year in his rookie profile when he was at seven boards a game or something like that. But it just makes no difference. Even even if he were a lesser rebounder and grabbed five boards a game, like what is Harden? Is Harden at like five or six as a rebounder, I would guess. Again, it's just these aren't things I pay attention to. But if it were like five or six, would it change his value as a player in any meaningful way? No. Because so much of what he does, almost to, almost all of his value on the court, comes from his combination of threatening to score and shredding defenses with passing. Russell Westbrook, another example. Last year, I, people asked me a lot about Westbrook. I said he's probably closer to an eight-rebound-per-game player on a normal team. Does that change anything about his value or about his skill as a rebounder? Uh, not in my opinion, none. And right now he is, well, I should, should I know these things? I feel like I shouldn't know these things. They're just not that important. Eight rebounds, 7.9 rebounds per game. Why? Because remember the premise. The premise is a 25 point per game score at plus five efficiency. We have a, we have a general, we have a pretty good idea of how reflective that stat is of the score with give or take some context. Well, what's the rebounding analog there? I mean, if you're a guard, you're going to be panned if you only average three rebounds per game. I mean, now there's so many rebounds that go around. I'm not even sure that could really happen. But obviously the guy I'm thinking of for anyone familiar with my historical work is Reggie Miller. Miller averaged like three boards a game in so many seasons. So if you look at his defensive rebounding percentages relative to the league, he's like minus four, minus five. Uh, let's see here. His worst year in the nineties is closer to minus six, 2000. He has a minus seven. So what's going on there? I mentioned it earlier. He liked to leak out. Was he on bad rebounding teams or something like that? Not really. In 1989, his Pacers were, that was his best rebounding year, minus 4%, by the way, on defense, defensive rebounding. They were 17th in the league. They were 23rd in D rating. Not a very not a very good defensive team. That was like the Chuck Person, Reggie Miller, Pacers team. Who was their best rebounder? LaSalle Thompson, plus 9% in limited minutes. Herb Williams, plus 6%. Rick Smith was young. He was only plus 3%. Those are all defensive rebounding percentages relative to the average player in the league. In that season, we fast forward to 1993. Same story, 18th in defensive rebounding, 21st in defensive rating. They had Dale Davis in 1993, plus 7%. Schrempf was better. Schrempf Schrempf was asked to rebound more. So he goes up to plus 6%. He goes from plus 2% to plus 6%. That's a nice sizable jump in defensive rebounding percentage as an individual. The team's the same. 18th in defensive rebounding percentage, 21st in defensive rating. The year 2000, when Reggie rebounds even less, The team is 15th in defensive rebounding percentage, 13th in defensive rating. There are just better rebounders around him. It's not really his role. Mark Jackson as a guard is a better rebounder. Jalen Rose as a guard is a better rebounder. Dale Davis is plus 10%. Austin Crozier played a bunch of minutes that year, plus 8%. Even Smits is plus 4%. Reggie being the one to go grab an extra rebound or two, whatever, essentially makes no difference. That doesn't mean Reggie Miller is as good of a defensive rebounder as Magic Johnson or something. That doesn't mean that. It just means the variability in the skill is small relative to the value of the skill. Let's do a few more before we wrap up here. I mentioned Magic. Magic Johnson in 1982, the year he quote-unquote almost averaged a triple-double. I don't know why I did quote-unquote there. Interesting, interesting radio choice of the quote-unquote. I actually did the air quotes as well with my hands. 
Um, 9.6 rebounds per game in 1982 for Magic. That comes out to about 8.8 per 75. And his defensive rebounding percentage was plus 4%. So before we looked at the defensive rebounding percentage relative to the league average there, note that if you looked at 1982 and you said Magic's grabbing just under 10 boards a game, and then you looked at Rasheed Wallace and you said, oh, he's only grabbing six or seven boards a game, the sort of simplistic, naive perspective just from that one stat would make you think Magic is a much better rebounder. But just the simple act of accounting for how many defensive rebounds are available gets you to, oh, Rashid is grabbing more of the available defensive rebounds. Now, 1982, is this a, you know, is Magic's rebounding he's this point guard grabbing almost 10 boards a game or maybe you could say he's a two guard because norm nixon was still on that team and in reality magic sort of played this combo swiss army knife role that year well it must make la a dominant defensive rebounding team right la was 16th in defensive rebounding percentage let's finish with dennis rodman who maybe has an argument well he definitely has an argument for the best rebounder of all time. But as you can see, it's complicated. And the way I would frame that argument is to say, you have the largest impact on your team's overall rebounding performance relative to an average player, regardless of the strategy you take. Because if you take, you know, some guys may be good in some strategies and terrible in others. And I would want to understand, okay, of all the realistic rebounding strategies around the perimeter, you're guarding a big, you switch a lot, whatever it is, you're the guy that drives rebounding the most because of your rebounding skills. That's what we're going after. So Rodman had a history of that, totally separate conversation as to how impactful that was and how good he was at it. But, you know, his teammate in Chicago, Michael Jordan, was known as a good rebounding guard, I think for obvious reasons. Great athleticism, great motor, grabbed a bunch of boards at different times in his career. And in 1996, when they met up and teamed up, the Bulls finished eighth in defensive rebounding percentage and first in defensive rating. Rodman's defensive rebounding percentage was plus 19%. That's one of the best all time, by the way. But he just grabbed a lot of rebounds from his teammates. Luke Longley, plus 1%. Michael Jordan, plus 1%. Scottie Pippen, just plus 0.3%, right around league average in defensive rebounding percentage. Why? What's happening here? What we're getting at is diminishing returns. And that's what I want to leave you with today. I will put uh, a link in the show notes as well. But you can check out Eli Whitus has written about this. John Nichols at basketballstatistics.com observed the sort of diminishing returns on a number of stats and specifically rebounds. So Longley, the year before, was a plus 8% defensive rebounder. He's plus 1% next to Rodman. He's plus 8% without Rodman. Michael Jordan, at his peak, plus 4% in 1989, plus 2% in some other seasons. He stays similar. Scottie Pippen, Pippen, before Rodman, in 1994, when Pippen had his MVP burst and he was flying all over the place, and he was plus 6%. So Longley goes from plus 10, plus 8, to plus 1. Pippen goes plus 6 to 0. Jordan goes plus 4, plus 3, whatever, to 1. What's happening? Rodman's grabbing rebounds that other players would have grabbed. So, wrapping it up, We know rebounds aren't the only thing in basketball that suffer these diminishing returns. And that's certainly, I just want to leave you with that. That's not the point of the podcast today. The point of the podcast today is to say rebounding as a statistic is less informative now than ever because of the spaced out game, because of switching, because of when you play small ball lineups, you change your responsibility. One guy may look like a shooting guard and then he's going out in different settings and essentially playing what used to be a power forward. So there's going to be way more rebounds. Luca himself is basically a point guard on offense. And then on defense, 
has sort of the responsibilities of what a forward used to have. All of this changes stuff. All of this changes the numbers and how to interpret them and the meaning behind them. And then, of course, the the biggest premise of all is that rebounding itself, and I hope I hope I I made a convincing case in terms of going through some of the team numbers and um, talking through some of the situations, but the premise is that rebounding itself isn't as valuable as an individual thing, as an individual skill, as even if you want to mash together offensive and defensive rebounding, which I'm not comfortable doing, but if you did that and mash them together, it's still not as valuable. The best rebounder versus the worst rebounder, the the difference in impact basically pales in comparison between the best scorer and the worst scorer, the best playmaker and the worst playmaker. Uh, historical study bears that out. Team analysis bears that out. Regression analysis bears that out. That's what you get from, you know, box plus minus models and things like that. You can make a guy a great rebounder or a poor rebounder. It doesn't have a huge impact on how he affects the game. It's not a meaningless impact. It's just not as big as those other primary factors. And for me, those primary factors are scoring, playmaking, and depends on how you want to chop up defense. You could say defense itself is almost on that level, or you could say interior sort of paint help team defense is on that level. And then after that, I think you get to secondary skills. And those secondary skills are like spacing, rebounding, off-ball movement. Some of those things can be a little larger, but in general, it's not a, a top-line factor. So that's it. Remember to check out theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod for that free week trial, 50% off. I'm going to leave the link to the Ken Pomroy article in the show notes as well. It's a very interesting article on offensive rebounding in college basketball. And let me know what you thought of this episode at LG35 on Twitter. If you haven't seen the Stats 101 series thus far, please do so. But that, in conjunction with this, if you still have points to interject on rebounding or things to push back on, please do so. Uh, So many of you help drive the conversation forward on these kinds of topics and help sort of stimulate deeper thinking. I'm, I'm only one person. I tried to lay out rebounding as I've seen it based on research and studies over the years here, but doesn't necessarily mean I've covered everything, but it is certainly a complex topic and something that I would love to see kind of move into the secondary layer of information and value and allow us to focus more on a player's scoring, a player's playmaking, a player's paint defense, his perimeter defense, whatever it is, even off-ball movement over just this sort of relic from so many years ago, rebounding. Rebounding. Hope you uh, have a fantastic 2020. If you had a down 2019, maybe you can rebound in 2020. And otherwise, I will talk to you in the next episode. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. And I hope that you are having a great day.